0: creative journey it's easy to get lost but don't worry you'll lift off sometimes you just need a creative pep talk hey you're listening to the creative pep talk podcast i'm your host andy j pizza, pizza. pizza. do you currently or have you ever felt apathetic about your creative practice like Feel stuck in it, feel like you're only making stuff when you can force yourself to sit down and create. And at some point, you feel like the only reason I wanted to have a creative practice at all is because I wanted to do this. Now I'm having to force myself because I don't want to do it anymore. Have you ever felt like that? I feel like that every once in a while in my creative practice, but I have noticed that there are a lot of times that I feel like that when I'm playing video games. So right now, if you've been listening to the show for the past eight months or so, you've heard me nonstop talk about the game Elden Ring. Elden Ring, it, it won best game of the year. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's incredibly punishing. It's a, diff, a very difficult game. If you're not into that kind of difficult game, I wouldn't purchase it. But uh, I just love being punished like that. So I've almost racked up 200 hours on the game over the past eight months, and I've just been obsessed. But that obsession, of course, has its ups and downs. I'm not always as obsessed as, you know, the peak times when I'm all in and I want to stay up all night playing this game. And uh, I started thinking about, like, what contributes to those ups and downs? Why is it that sometimes I can't get enough and other times... I'm almost at the risk of giving up and letting go of something that has the potential to give me so much fulfillment and joy. And yes, I'm talking about Elden Ring and sure your your creative practice, but uh, wh- why? why, why does it ebb and flow so much? And I noticed that the times in which I am red hot for the game Uh, all have to do with having a clear sense of like, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This effort is what contributes to actually making a difference to beating that next boss or getting that new armor or leveling, getting an ancient dragon smithing, somber smithing stone. That one's for all, you know, the 10 people that listen to this that... (laughs) love that game. that's just for you everyone else is like, what the heck is he talking about uh, but when I know what that goal is and I know why I'm doing this and what it's about, what the effort is all about, what I'm what it's contributing to and I'm able to make some progress towards it. I'm super into the game and I'm loving every minute of it, not just reaching the goals but the journey. To, to, to achieving those goals. But whenever I'm like stuck at a boss or I'm lost and I'm like, I just don't even know, like I can keep playing for hours and hours, uh, but I don't know if any of the things I'm doing are actually contributing to where I'm trying to go. I end up losing interest and the same is true for creativity. So, the times in my creative practice when I didn't have a sense of what is this work all about? Like, why am I making this? You know, what is, what is it I'm trying to achieve or do or accomplish in this work? What is good illustration? What is a good podcast? What is a good children's book? What is a good talk? Like, what am I trying to do here? When I don't have a sense of that, I have a really hard time showing up to the studio. And it's difficult because what is creative work about? Like, is it about otherworldly, awe inspiring technical ability? Is it about like being able to run your fingers up and down the fret of that guitar with perfect precision and and just shred it to death or is it about heartbreaking heart healing poignancy is it about you know seeing something trendy fashionable new cutting edge like looks feels timeless and timely at the same time is that what it's about is it about mind melting concepts that boggle the brain and, and challenge your, your, uh, your philosophical mind or even just inspire you. Cause you're like, I, I can't even believe a human could be that clever. Like, is, is that what it's about? Like, what is it about? What is creativity about? And of course, it's not about just one thing. And that makes it even more difficult because it's like, Okay, is it kind of about all of these things? Like when I go fight a boss in Elden Ring, do I need the perfect armor, the perfect talisman, the perfect leveling up? The you know, like all I'm pushing all these buttons, and I feel like my creative practice is like this crazy giant machine, and it requires all these buttons. Got to push the Instagram one. Got to do the TikTok. Got to do. Got to publish a book. Got to do like all the. It's all. It's about all of it, and and then you have again no sense of hierarchy or direction or which of these things is actually contributing to what I'm trying to do. It's, it's incredibly easy to feel like what's the point. Cause you can't keep up firing on every single level of what everybody thinks creativity, what your creative practice should be about. Like pretty soon you're going to burn out or you're going to lose interest. And that thing that you used to do because you wanted to do it, you're now having to force yourself to do. And so what's even the point of that? And of course, it's not about any one thing. It's not about any of them in particular because creativity is not objective. It's not one size fits all. It's the very opposite of that. It's, it's subjective. And I personally grew up kind of thinking that the word subjective meant there is no definition of good it's a type of thing that where good can't be defined but if you dive into the definition of subjective that's not what it means it actually means it's defined by the individual and it and so there is a difference between good and bad it's just down to the individual but even that definition i feel like is a little bit misleading because I think it is down to you to what's good and what's bad in creative work. It is down to you, but it doesn't mean that you get to decide either or choose a definition any more than you get to choose a style or choose what's appealing to you. Because for me personally, my experience has been that your definition of what's good and what your creative work is all about is not something you get to decide it's something that has an element of it that is as predetermined as whether you like cilantro or whether it tastes like soap to you you don't get to decide that that's just your taste And there are so many contributing factors, your your DNA, your experience, your associations, like all, there's so many factors to why you do or do not like a certain type of food. And I think the exact same thing is true for creative work. Mm -hmm. This is a tasty masterpiece. Like your definition of good? what lights up your creative taste buds. It isn't something you necessarily get to decide. I think you can be open. I think you can develop it. I think you can acquire tastes, but ultimately you can't force yourself to love something or force yourself to believe that creative work is about something that you ultimately don't believe that it's about that does not resonate on a visceral level for you. And so we're going to do a three-part series all about the idea of creative taste. Once it hits your, lips, it's so good. your creative taste is what drives your creative sensibility, which I think supersedes both uh, style and what you want to say, you know, message. I think your creative sensibility is the bedrock. All those other things matter. There's a lot of other things that, that, need to be part of your creative practice, whether it's learning new skills or, or, um, you know, everything else that, that matters in creativity. But I think the starting place has to come from your particular subjective point of view and what creativity lights you up on an intuitive level. And I think you have to start in that place because when you do, you're going to be like me on those late night elden ring binges where i just cannot get enough because i have a sense of like this is what i'm trying to achieve and i know because i have the the taste for this thing i know i can sniff my way there like because you have the sensitivity so we're going to do a three part series all about taste we're going to dive deep into this because to me it's the guiding light of my creative practice Uh, we're going to talk about in this one, we're going to talk about what that means next time. We're going to talk a little bit about how your influences help, uh, teach you how to create from your taste. And then the third one, we're going to talk about how to use your taste actively in your creative process so that you can make stuff that tastes delicious for yourself. So you can make work that you actually are crazy about. And the reason why I wanted to revisit this topic was because you might've seen, if you're a creator, you've probably seen, you've probably heard of Rick Rubin and you might've seen that he did a big 60 minutes interview uh, recently. And he's been all over the internet, a lot of opinions flying around about some of the stuff he's saying. Here's this guy who's this giant renowned music producer of these classic records. And here he is saying like, I don't know how to play an instrument. I don't even know how to use a sound mixer. All I have is taste. And I've seen so many different opinions on that. And wherever you fall in that spectrum and and maybe you might not even land exactly where I am or or even closer to where Rick Rubin is at the end of this series, but my hope is that at the very least, even if you don't build your practice on taste, that you have a sense of what your taste is and it becomes an active tool that contributes to making work that you're crazy about and staying crazy about making work. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about what is your creative taste? Why do I think it's so important? Why does Rick Rubin think it's so important in terms of creativity? And how can you start to create from that deeper sense of what's good in your creative practice? we get into the show, whether you are a first-time listener or a long-time listener, there is a good chance that you're searching for some creative inspiration, which is why I got to tell you about the podcast American Masters Creative Spark. It is a Webby award-winning podcast from the great people at PBS. The new season of American Masters Creative Spark just dropped, and it's definitely worth a listen. From first cow director Kelly Reichardt and -and up-and-coming actor John David Washington to Pulitzer-winning novelist Jennifer Egan, host Joe Skinner taps into the minds of artists and icons across disciplines. That's the kind of thing you got to fill up on as you're going to hear in this episode. Uh, Follow American Masters Creative Spark on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can send us the thanks later. Go check it out. American Masters Creative Spark. Okay, so if you find yourself in a place where you are apathetic and you've lost interest in making stuff, and every time you go to make something, it's only because you've forced yourself back into it. Look, first of all, I just got to say, there's a time and place for that. There's a time and place for, you know, for myself personally, as someone with ADHD, I have a problem with like transitions. I have a really hard time getting started. Once I'm started, I have a hard time stopping. It's, you know, it's a whole thing. And uh, that happens. That's totally fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when consistently you're just growing more and more apathetic about, what it is you do creatively and you're forcing yourself to do something you don't want to do that you only started doing cause you wanted to do it. Like that's a bad place to be in. If you find yourself in there in that place, the first thing I think you got to do is you got to get back to listening to yourself before you listen to anybody else, including your followers, your audience, your listeners, your friends, your family, anybody, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I'm a big people pleaser. And, and in fact, I love to delight people. So if somebody says, oh, I loved how you uh, made that sandwich, I'm going to want to make a sandwich for them every single day because I like doing that kind of thing for people. And you're probably like me to a degree. You like when people like your work. And you like when you made something and someone was like, oh, my gosh, this just does it for me. But if you allow that to be your true north, at some point, you might not be true to yourself. You might be listening to other people more than you're listening to yourself. And that's a huge problem because that voice, that desire, that internal taste mechanism of what lights you up currently about making stuff, that is the only navigational tool that you have. It's your only compass in your creative path that can show you the way because art is so subjective. And I wanna dive into a little bit what that means and and how we can kind of conceptualize that so that week in and week out, you're able to return back to that true north over and over again. Now, like I said, I'm a big believer that there is a time and place for listening to others, getting good, genuinely important feedback But I think it was Steve Jobs that said they don't ask their customers what they want because if their customers knew what they wanted, they'd be the ones able to create the iPhone. But nobody knew they wanted that before it existed. Now, it doesn't mean that later in the process, after the thing has been launched, that they don't Learn from their users and how they use the product and what their frustrations are and and what they think could be better. They do. They absolutely do. And it's one of the ways that they improve the things that they create, but they don't start there. That's not listening to that feedback, isn't the impulse of where your creative practice should go or what the next piece of work or project you should do is. And I want to explain why I feel like that is. So imagine there's this incredible world renowned chef. I mean every single thing that they do is just perfect I've been watching the bear love it loved that show it, it was phenomenal that kind of guy worked in the best restaurants right best restaurant in the world and this person is just got the the knife skills and and can uh plate things just beautifully keeps the restaurant just pristine, just completely incredible. And that person opens this amazing looking steakhouse in the heart of New York city. And it's just like, this is going to be the next big thing. And you go there, the critic goes there to go taste this world renowned chef's amazing, perfectly cooked steak. And he cuts into it and it's just the perfect pink. And he puts it in his mouth and it's under seasoned it's not juicy enough. It wasn't a fatty enough cut maybe. I don't know. I don't know steaks. But it's just not that good. And he goes back and he's like, "Hey man, like did you even taste this? Like this is not great uh in terms of steak." And he's like, "Whoa, whoa, no. I don't, I didn't taste it. I'm a vegetarian." You'd be like, "What the heck? <laughs> like why would you start a steakhouse when you don't eat steak?" You don't have a taste for steak. Like, why would you do that? And and he's like, well, I mean, I thought people like steak. And he's right. People do like steak. But if you don't, you have no business in the steak industry. That's crazy. That wouldn't happen. A vegetarian's not going to open a steakhouse. Someone's not going to go out of their way to create a whole brand and identity and business around something they themselves don't have a taste for. Except for that happens all the time, including, you know, many of the creative projects that I have done over the years when I've allowed myself to get lost and away from that true north of my own taste. There have been actually many projects that I've created that were, in fact, me as a quote unquote vegetarian creating a steakhouse. And maybe that is true for you. And the problem with that is, of course, that if you don't eat steak, if you're not able to taste the dish as you go, or you don't even have a definition of what good and bad is yourself, how in the world are you going to navigate through the complexities of cooking a dish like that to perfection? Now, that's just a steak. Like, if you're really going to— get somewhere in the culinary industry, you're going to have to make stuff that's a lot more complicated than that. And the only instrument you have as a chef is your own palate, no matter what creative dishes you're cooking up. doesn't matter if it's food or not. And the reason is, is because it's subjective and there are no rules. And so if you are a musician, it's easy to be like in the early 2000s and, and just be like, look, Saxophones are off limits, never a saxophone. Every song with a saxophone sucks until the person comes along and puts a massive sax solo in the middle of the song. And for some reason, it tastes delicious to your ears, right? There are no rules. And so the only way to navigate when there are no rules is to have a deeper intuitive sense of when it's time to play by the rules and when it's time to break them. And the only way you know how to do that is by tapping into your own sense of what is lighting me up. When I do this, does it do it for me or does it not? But you can't do that if you're not willing to taste the steak. And so that's the only creative tool that you have. And the creators that I love the most are just so diehard sold out to their own taste. If you've listened to this show more than one episode, you've heard me talk about Tim Robinson. Uh, He's a comedian that I'm a huge fan of. My wife's not happy about it. (laughs) He can't, my kids aren't happy about it. They're about to disown me from quoting his show. I think you should leave. I'm. It's just, uh, yeah, it's become a problem for me. But when I've heard Tim get interviewed for, about his comedy and they're deconstructing, like, why did you do that? Why did you do this? You get to this point with a creator like that who is creating for themselves. And the only thing they can say is that when I tasted that steak, It was delicious. I loved it. And so when they would say, hey, you said the word mud pie in like three skits in that season, like most comedians would think it would be breaking the rules to repeat yourself. Why did you put it in those other skits when you'd already done that joke? Why did you revisit it? And Tim's answer is because when we did it again, I laughed harder. When I did it the third time, it was even funnier than the first time. And you see how... Like, what's funny and what's not is such an abstract thing. What lights you up? What story is going to move you? What word that you choose as a, as a poet is going to set you on fire internally? There's such a complex matrix of culture and where you're at in your life and where we are as people and what has been done before and what's, you know, feels like it's right next. And like, there's so many different things. It's like that giant machine there's so many buttons that you could be pushing at any given time there's 256 colors available for uh, uh, i mean i'm there's more than that but that that even that is so overwhelming like which one are you going to choose especially when you know when it comes to choosing colors you don't even have to go by reality but you only do if reality is the thing that moves you or If you're Mary Blair and you're making concept art for the Disney movie, Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan or It's a Small World, you know, she was there picking all of these colors that didn't make any sense. They broke all the rules. In fact, she even left Disney for a little bit because they kept pushing back on her, And they ended up pulling her back in because they, they just realized that she had her own unique creative vision and they, and, and she was like, look, I'm not coming back. If you don't let me lean into this taste, because she had a sense as well, that it was the only instrument she had. It's the only way she would know which color to choose. Wasn't what color is a tree. It's when I make a tree brown it doesn't taste good. When I make it pink for some reason it does it for me. And that's ultimately yes, you can learn a lot of uh, core values, you can come up with a lot of methodology, you can level up your skills. All of those things are things that you can add onto that inner mechanism of taste. But I think that has to be at the bottom of it and I think it has to have a hierarchical, hierarchical authority over the rest of them because if it doesn't, you will be stuck in rules and there are no rules in creativity. And when there are, those things cease to be creative because the definition of creativity is something that is unexpected. And so as soon as it becomes rules, sometimes the only creative thing to do is break them. When should you do that? when it tastes delicious. And so if you are sold on that, if you are uh, up for it, let's talk, we're going to get into an activity about how to start, uh, maybe you've listened to this show for a long time and you already have taste as part of your repertoire and how you create things. Or uh, maybe you're just starting to get familiar with this and you want to inject some taste into your creative practice. Wherever you are, we can all use a tune up and a calibration back to the tuning fork that is that taste. And the bottom line is if you are in a place where you're feeling like I don't even know what to make next, I don't even know what color to choose next, I am in analysis paralysis or or even worse apathy. The question I or the thing I would pose to you would be this. Uh, we're social animals most of what we do has to contribute to our sense of community and connection with other people. That's really where I think we get meaning in our life. Like do we, uh, Lulu Miller has a book uh, called, um, and we're going to talk about her in the next episode. I think it's called do fish exist or fish don't exist. I don't even know. I'm sorry, Lulu. I forgot the name, Uh, but uh, I love that book. and, And it's about how, this pursuit of do we matter and it's a huge existential question and ultimately she comes to the conclusion that we absolutely without a doubt matter because we matter to each other for a fact and if you are have that creative impulse yes a big part of it might be this kind of atelic experience of making creativity for the sake of it like why do you go on a hike? You go on a hike because you like the experience, not because you want to get anywhere. And why do you create art? Well, yeah, part of it is definitely that experience of you just like spending your time putting the pencil to the page or like uh, coming up with new ideas or what whatever it might be. You probably enjoy the process of that, but ultimately. If, you're, if you want to create a creative practice and you want to spend gobs and gobs of your time on that work, you're also going to have a deep subconscious urge to make this matter not just to you, but to other people because we have that impulse. And if you want people to listen to you, how can you ask them to do that if you're not willing to listen to yourself? If you're not willing to listen to your own internal taste mechanism, your own thing that says this color, that choice, that note, that word, like that, there's something about that or no, not that. Listen to it when it says, no, 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 that's massive cringe. Um, Like whatever it is, like you got to listen to that. And I'm, and, and you got to filter out the part of you that is just, you know, the resistance or just, you have to learn those those voices too of like there's, there's a other voice in you that's telling you don't do anything at all or just it's better, it's safer not to be vulnerable or whatever it is. That's a different voice. This is an inner gut thing that is a, it's not even a choice. It's just a, a, a response and you got to get in touch with your own creative palette, whether it's an ear for music, an eye for composition, uh, a funny bone that that has a sensitivity to what's funny and what's not, whatever your creative taste buds are, whatever that palette is, you've got to identify what it is and what it likes right now and be true to that thing but you, because you you can't ask anybody to listen to you if you're not willing to listen to yourself. Also, a big shout-out to our print sponsor, Jack Prince, who helped us make the most beautiful 2023 calendar that we've uh, ever made. I mean, it's the only 2023 calendar that we've ever made. That'd be weird if we'd made others, but it's we've made many calendars, and this one is the most beautiful. Uh, for the lucky people that got one before it sold out, you know the printing is delicious, and, uh, and we've had people comment on that. We've had people ask... About like what's the deal with the printing? It looks fantastic, and it does because it's Jack Prints, and they do great work. We do have new prints in the shop by Jack Prints. You can go check those out, and uh, I, we've had um, T-shirts made by Jack Prints that I love and wear all the time. Huge fan. Love working. Love working with them. They're based in Ohio. If you have print needs, go check them out. JackPrints.com. J-A-K-P-R-I-N-T-S.com. Um, we love what they do. Thanks, Jack Prince. Okay, it's time for your creative call to action, your creative call to adventure. Every episode on the show we give you an idea and we try to give you a tool to put it to practice in your creative practice today. Uh, something quick that you can do a little thought experiment, a little activity, a little, uh, new trick in, in how to approach your creative work. So today it is identify your super taste. Okay. So this episode's all about what do you do when you're apathetic about making creative work, you you feel lost or you've lost interest and you ultimately get to this place where you're like, what is this even about? I don't understand why I wanted to do this in the first place. Why do I care about this thing? And in this episode, we talked about how work is, your creative work is about whatever you feel like it's about. It's subjective. And that means that, uh, that doesn't mean that there is no definition of good. It means that you have to define what is good for yourself. It's whatever feels good to you to consume what you feel like is, is ultimately good work. And you have to tune yourself in back to the kind of work that lights you up. And the kind of, the kind of work that made you want to be a creator in the first place And you have to get back to that stuff that moves you on a deep level and define and have clarity around this is what creative work is for me. And the reason you have to do that is because there are so many definitions of what is good in creativity because it's subjective. There are as many opinions and as many definitions of what great creative work is as there are individuals who make or even consume creative work. And so it is very easy to lose sense of what matters to you because if you're true to what matters to you as a creator and you give yourself to that particular expression and and, and lighting up your own creative taste buds, you will ultimately be doing a, a poor job of showing up on everybody else's palate because some people think a movie should be about something completely different. And if you're constantly unsure of what it's about to you, you're going to start just people pleasing. You're going to start listening to everybody else. And so remember it's objective, but that doesn't mean that there's no good or no or, or bad. It's just that good or bad is defined by the individual. And I'd say it it is defined by you, but it's not decided by you. You get to decide what uh, is good and bad in creative work as much as you get to decide whether or not you feel like cilantro tastes delicious or whether it tastes like soap, right? Like you don't get to decide that. There is a, there is a degree in which your creative palate is fixed to something that you don't decide. A lot of things go into play to what makes you sensitive to particular types of creative work. Now, in the next episode, we're going to talk about things like acquired taste and openness to experience and, and, and developing your taste. But uh, you're always going to be somewhat limited. You can't force yourself to like something that you don't. And that's where guilty pleasures are going to uh, take a, an interesting place in, in the development of your taste. Um, but for now... Here's what we're going to do. Your creative call to adventure is to define your super taste. You need to listen to yourself and have and kind of have a meeting with yourself and figure out like what is currently just tasting delicious in the kind of creative work that I make. Or even any type of creative work can actually inform the practice you do, even people that work in totally different mediums. But it's important to come back because also your taste change, just like your taste buds, you know, I don't know what it is, like every seven years or something, your taste buds are completely different. Like you need to tune back in, even if you've done this practice before in the past. And so what you need to do is figure out what is your super taste And super taste is a definition. It's a scientific definition. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like something I just made up. But there are these individuals that have uh, what's called, they're called super tasters. And it's because they have uh, an enormous amount, a way above average amount of taste buds. I guess the amount of taste buds on on a tongue can vary dramatically from individual to individual. And I would argue that Uh, Your best bet of making complex, uh, powerful, original creative dishes is by leaning into what you have a super taste for. What part of your creative palate is extremely sensitive because the more taste buds you have, so to speak, metaphorically speaking— the, the easier it is to reverse engineer recipes that you love and understand like, oh, all of these pieces have to come together. These chords in this order with this contrast had a lot to do with why it hit me on this visceral level. And the more sensitive your palate, the, the, the better it's going to be at helping you navigate your own micro decisions in all of the things that you choose as you're creating something yourself. And so the more sensitive the palate, the the better it is going to be at navigating you towards making something really special. So how do you do that? Well, uh, it starts with, there's, we're gonna break it down into two pieces. The first piece of finding your, and defining your super taste is, what is creativity all about for you in the broad sense? Now, if you're a comedian, it's obvious. If you're a comedian, it's laughter. That's what it's about. It's getting laughs. And that might seem like the most obvious thing in the world. It is. But when it comes to illustration, it's not so much. When it comes to design, it's not so much. When it comes to story, it's not so much. In fact, all of those things are so much more subjective than comedy because it's not clearly defined or agreed upon by the industry or by the audience. What is this even about? What is good design? What is good illustration? And so you're gonna have to put it upon yourself to define what is this thing all about for me as an illustrator. I kind of think of illustration as the MSG if we're going to work within the food metaphors of the creative world because its whole job is to increase the potency of the thing that it's bringing to life. You know, illustration doesn't ever exist on its own. Like you can't illustrate nothing. It has to at least be an idea that you're bringing to life. And, and even more often, it's bringing a text to life. And in that way, I I see a lot of parallels with acting, acting and illustration are very similar in the same way that an actor brings a script to life, brings a character to life uh, on the screen an illustration. The job is to bring the text of a kid's book or the text of an article to life on the page. And its whole job is to make uh, whatever the purpose of the article, whatever the text is trying to do, it's trying to take that purpose and just increase the potency, increase the flavor so that it hits in a more visceral instant way. Like that's what illustration I think is all about and it's the, and and it's the same thing that um a verbal illustration is about. Like a verbal illustration, like a metaphor or a story or an analogy in a talk, Its job is to take the point and increase the potency to bring it home in a bigger, more visceral way. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Design, look, I'm not a designer. There's a lot of opinions on what design, what good design is, what bad design is. So you're going to have to decide for yourself. You know, I thought about it for a little bit and I thought, Uh, I think a big part of it is not to necessarily increase the potency like illustration, but eliminate the friction and the clutter around the efficiency of what the, the purpose of a thing is. So whatever a brand is, it's supposed to just inject that idea and sensibility and purpose directly into the user instantaneously, And even when you design a user interface, it's really about like, what's the purpose of this and and, and getting strategic about that's the end result we're trying to get to. How are we going to reverse engineer a perfect, you know, step by step or, or, or with the shapes or with the colors or with the hierarchy, how are we going to make sure we reach that end with as little friction as possible? and make it as intuitive as possible, whatever it is. That's a lot of blabbering to define design, but I'm not a designer, like I said. But if you are, you have to have, in a big picture way, what is this all about? Uh, But I wouldn't stop there. And so we're going to think about our, whatever you do as, um, let's just think of it as food, and we talk about your 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 tongue, your palate for that thing. If you're an illustrator, it's an eye for pictures. If it's comedy, it's the funny bone for, for, uh, for, for jokes, like whatever it is, let's picture it as a tongue. And when I did a taste episode way back in the day, I had a listener go to the palate of an actual tongue and it's split up into these individual parts. And, uh, I don't know who that was. So if it is Whoever that was, reach out if you're listening and I'll give you a shout out in the next episode. Uh, But they didn't do this exact thing that we're doing. They just kind of, they pointed to the diagram and I thought that was really brilliant. So we're gonna work, use that here. So your tongue breaks down into five basic tastes. There's a part of your tongue that's responsible for sweet things. There's one for salt, uh, bitter, sour, and umami, okay? And so if you're a comedian- Let's break it down and see which of these areas are you most interested in speaking to and playing at. And we could think about, okay, sweet. So if you're trying to be just sweet, maybe you're a clean comic. Maybe you're something the whole family can watch. You're not trying to ruffle any feathers. It's just dessert comedy. It's just to make you laugh. No extra baggage. You're a clean comic. Maybe it's salty. Maybe you got a a hot take and it's a satire. Uh, Maybe it's bitter. Maybe you're an angry comic. Maybe it's sour and you're the cringe discomfort, um, awkward comedy of like the early office or UK office or, uh, Curb your enthusiasm, like whatever that might be. Maybe it's just cringy, like you're attracted to that, those sour moments. Uh, and the last one is umami, which uh, if you don't know, that's like a, a savory flavor uh, on your tongue. Some people describe it as meaty. And so we're going to go with the meaty side of it and say, uh, maybe you're a philosophical comic. Maybe uh, your whole comedy thing is the the sugar for the medicine of you, you got them to laugh, but it also undid their, their philosophical framework for a minute. And you caused them to have an existential panic in the parking lot after the show that made them reflect and made them uh, self-reflective and think about why do they have the opinions that they have? Like, maybe that's you. Maybe you're, you're firing on that side of the creative taste. Obviously, there's so much more nuance than all this, but this is just a a start. If you're an illustrator, if you're a, a podcaster, if you're a poet, go through these five things, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, umami, uh, and just start to think about which of these start to resonate on a deeper level. And the best way to do that is to determine what are you most sensitive to. Like, What gets you on the deepest visceral level without deciding? We're going to get into this next time, but this is why guilty pleasures are so powerful. Like they tell you what lights you up in a visceral way, even though you wish that it didn't. So what could be more of an authentic super taste than that? And if you are struggling to figure out which of these categories are really doing it for you, I have one other hint uh, sometimes the easiest way to find what your super taste is, isn't what you love, but what you hate. So if you go into the research around actual super tasters in the world of food and, and flavor on your tongue, the people that are super tasters are often really, really picky because it's just so overwhelming uh, in terms of sensitivity. And so if you are picky, In a particular area, if you really, really, if maybe if you look through the sweet, salt, bitter, sour, umami, all those different ideas, which of those categories, when they're done wrong, just make you want to metaphorically or literally barf like which of those can you just not stomach the bad version that means you have a really clear sense a really clear internal visceral definition of good and bad and sometimes you can learn more about what you want to do by what you definitely don't want to do and so if you're having a hard time finding your super taste it might be found in which of these categories, when it's wrong, it's really wrong. Um, and so, yeah, figured out, figured out in the big sense. Like, what, what is it? What is your creative food, your creative sustenance, so to speak? Like, is it laughing? Is it illustration? The increasing of potency? Is it reducing friction of design or whatever it is? What is? Your creative practice all about what's the food, what's the sustenance, what's the substance of that thing, and then break it down even further into what am I trying to produce, or what what is my favorite sweet, salt, bitter, sour, umami? Which of them do it for you? All right, that's it. want to leave you with one other quick thought. You know, as I've been researching and thinking about the idea of creative taste over the past few years, I stumbled upon uh, the work on this subject by uh, Immanuel Kant or Kant. Everybody seems to say it differently. And, uh, you know, I, I've tried to read Emmanuel uh, Kant and I can't. That's the joke I always say because it's, it's so ridiculously dense and I guess it's pretty common that Requires years of kind of diving into that text and, and reading commentators, but from what I could gather from uh, the work and the work around it, he was really obsessed with this idea of a priori, and it was the things that we have kind of custom built into our intelligence and and imp- opinions before experience, like a priori meaning um, like. Well, I don't know what the definition is because I I don't know Latin, but I know that it means before experience. It's before anything starts to change our opinions. And I think that's what I'm ultimately trying to get people to go back to and get myself back to is, you know, uh, what did you love before people told you what you should love? And can you get back to that kind of truth? And, I'm, and I was fascinated by how Immanuel Kant only thought a few things are truly a priori. And one of those things was taste. You know, it was this sense of beauty or sense of what's moving or, or powerful or true within nature or art. And, um, and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that there's a degree in which your palate is predetermined. And I do think it changes over time. I do think you can acquire and develop uh, uh, aspects of your taste, but you, you can't be completely untrue to it and you can't completely redefine it just because what lights you up isn't cool or, um, or what have you or, or you want to please somebody else. You've got to figure out how to listen to yourself because if you don't, you really can't ask anybody else to listen to you. Listen to your art. That's what we're getting into in this episode. The next episode, we're going to talk about. We're going to go deeper into the place and power that influences have in your work and how they can help you get a sense of your own sensibility, which is defined by your taste. It's the ability of your sense of taste Um, and uh, and all the little hints and tricks. Because when you those influences and and um, those Clues will help you build out a a sensibility, and that really determines your style and your substance and and the kind of work that you produce. Um, I mean, it's my jam. Maybe you hate it. I don't know, Uh, but uh, you're listening to the wrong podcast then because I'm fired up about it, clearly. Um, I hope hope you didn't mind. Got a little passionate around here. Uh, Massive shout-out to the patrons. This is partially listener-supported. And, uh, you know, you're keeping the lights on. We we really appreciate all our patrons at patrons at patreon.com slash creative pep talk. Um, people like Jennifer Schumann, who uh, supports the podcast um, and has done for two months. We see you, Jennifer. We appreciate you. If you can afford to um, help out and <clears throat> pay for some of the costs of doing the show, really super appreciate it. Uh, If you can't afford it, but you still want to help out the show, one thing you can do is just share it. Share it on social media. Share it with some uh, friends. If you have friends that could uh, um, perhaps be intellectually or creatively stimulated by the idea of taste, or maybe it'll help them get a little bit uh, less apathetic about the work and, and start getting excited about it again, we'd appreciate it if you'd share the show with them. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing the show and for sound design. Thanks to uh, Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all other kinds. And uh, till we speak again, stay pepped up.